This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 6, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up this week, international news editor Martin Ensering talks about a moratorium on prion research after the fatal brain disease infected two lab researchers in France. Next, researcher Abbe Goyal talks with intern Claire Hogan about his science advances paper, on figuring out how to reduce the massive carbon footprint of cement by looking at its molecular structure. Finally, in a sponsored segment, Director of Custom Publishing Sean Sanders talks with researcher Ansuman Sapathi about the benefits of supporting early career researchers. Now we have Martin Ensering, International News Editor for Science. We're going to talk about a moratorium on prion disease research in France. Hi, Martin. Hey, Sarah. And this is a story you actually edited, right? Correct. Yeah, it's a story by uh, Barbara Cassas, a freelancer in Paris that I had the pleasure of editing. Let's start with prion diseases. I think many people might be familiar with mad cow disease or bovine spongiform encephalopathy, which is a fatal infectious brain disease in cows. In humans, there is a prion disease called Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, and it also causes brain damage and death. But prion diseases have some very unusual features. What's so unusual about prions, Martin? Prions are really fascinating proteins that cause disease without there being any virus or bacterium or anything else involved. They're proteins that misfold, that when they come into contact with similar proteins can cause those proteins to misfold as well. So it is like an infection, except there's no virus. But if prions enter your brain, they can cause proteins in your brain to misfold, and that destroys the brain tissue and causes, it's like holes in your brain almost, and eventually is always fatal. Prion disease hasn't been much in the news since about 2000, when the mad cow outbreak finally ended in Europe. But now there's a moratorium on prion research in France. What's happened? Yeah, it's, it's really unusual, but the five French institutes that do this kind of research decided to stop it for three months. But what happened is that two years ago, a lab worker in France died from variant Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease, the human form of mad cow disease or BSE. And it's almost certain that she acquired this disease 10 years ago when she pricked herself in the lab 
with forceps that was contaminated with prion tissue. So basically it was a lab accident. She died a horrible disease and that was one case, but now there's a second case of a retired lab worker in France. The new patient is still alive. The French don't know if she was also infected on the job, but they're uh, erring on the side of caution and they've said, let's, let's stop this type of research for a while while we uh, look into the case. How likely would it be for someone to catch a prion disease in the wild, not in the lab? Well, for a variant CJD, that is the type that you get from contaminated beef, that's virtually impossible now because there is no BSE anymore or very, very, it's very rare. So for somebody of the age of the lab worker who died two years ago, that just would not, not happen. That's why people think she caught it in the lab. But there's also what's called classic CJD. That's the form that's not related to mad cow disease. And for this new case, they don't know if it was variant CJD or classic CJD. If it was classic, then it may not be related to her work in the lab. And sadly, there's no real way to find out which type it is until after a patient dies. And then they do a brain autopsy and examine the brain and conclude which form it is. So we may not know for a while what type of disease she has exactly. Yeah, this really points out, you know, how different it is if you get a stick with a potentially prion-laden needle or sharp in the lab. It's different than, say, you know, you're working in a lab with a virus or a bacteria. Yeah, it really is. Although, of course, there are other really dangerous diseases like Ebola, and there have been accidents with Ebola. But even there, your chance of dying is is not 100% if you become infected. And now there are also Ebola vaccines. And with many other diseases, you can be treated if you have a lab accident. But with prions, if you're exposed, you have a very long period in which you don't know if you've become infected because the incubation period can be as long as a decade or, or even longer. And if you are infected, there's no hope because the diseases are always fatal. Right. Are the safety measures for working with prion similar to what's done with other infectious diseases like Ebola? Yeah, the safety measures are already very strict, but the family of the patient who died in France two years ago, they claim they weren't strict enough. Uh, they've filed a lawsuit against the institute where this woman worked. They say it's, it's basically manslaughter because she wasn't well enough protected. But there are strict safety measures. Since then, in France, they've become even stricter. For instance, people can try to avoid the use of very sharp objects. They can use plastic instead of metal knives, for instance. In the story that we have about this case this week, there's a researcher in Switzerland who says he's gone even further. He doesn't really work with bovine prions because they are so dangerous unless it's absolutely necessary, for instance, for medical diagnostics, but not in research. So for the moratorium is the idea to take another look at the safety procedures to see what can be done. Yeah. What they want to do is examine this case, I think, and see what they can find out about an accident or if something happened that could have exposed this patient and, if necessary, um, tighten the rules even further. One other unusual thing I saw in this story is that it's possible that prions can spread through aerosols. Now, that probably wasn't known when a lot of these safety protocols were set up. This uh, researcher in Switzerland that our story quotes published an experiment back in 2011 showing that with mouse prions, they can be aerosolized and that's another way mice can become infected. Of course, you can do that kind of experiment with people, but 
this researcher said he was really shocked when he found out because he realized that makes lab studies even more dangerous. And he says he tightened the rules in his own lab at the time, but study didn't attract all that much attention. But it just shows that just how dangerous this field is and and that researchers internationally may have to, to take another close look. Yeah, there aren't that many people who do this kind of research. And as the story says, one person has stopped working in this, maybe because of the dangers, but it's not a mass exodus. Not everybody's leaving. No, it's not. I think researchers are all shocked when they hear a case like this. It's really awful when somebody becomes infected on the job and dies. But it hasn't caused many other people to leave the field. I think it may have caused them to work more cautiously. Yeah, I was really surprised by this number of accidents, Uh, 17 in the 100 or so scientists working on this in France. And five of those accidents involved cutting or stabbing with contaminated tools. Yeah, that's right. I mean, other people said 17 of these accidents over a period of more than 10 years isn't all that much. But when an accident can be this fatal, it does sound like a like a high number. The people who are staying in this, that are going to keep working on prions, they must think it's pretty important to keep learning more about these diseases. Yes, they do, because prion diseases still exist. Like I said, there's a a natural form that is not related to BSE, the, the cow disease. There's also a disease in deer called chronic wasting disease. So there's a variety of this type of diseases, and, and researchers think it's important to continue this, this line of research. Absolutely. Thanks, Martin. Martin Enserink is the international news editor for science. You can find a link to the article we discussed at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for a chat with researcher Abe Goyal about watching cement dry. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. We live in a world of concrete. From buildings to sidewalks, it's everywhere around us. But most of us don't stop to think about what goes into concrete or its implications for the environment. This week in Science Advances, Abe Goyal and colleagues write about cement cohesion and how a deeper understanding of the physics of this process could help reduce the carbon footprint of cement production, one of the biggest in the world. Abe is here to tell us about it. I'm Claire Hogan. Hi, Abe. Hi. So we see concrete every day, but a lot of us probably don't know what it actually is. So what is concrete and how is it different from cement? The actual building material you see in buildings, bridges, etc., is concrete, that hardened material. And the cement is basically the glue of concrete. So when you make concrete, you mix cement powder with water and you add in rocks, sand, gravel, and other aggregates. And then the cement reacts with the water and forms this really sticky substance that serves as the glue for the hardened material. That is so interesting. You're right. Most people use them interchangeably. They don't necessarily make that distinction. 
I guess it's a really only an important distinction when you're involved in the material and a lot of people use them as the same because they hear facts about one interchangeably with the other. You mentioned in the paper that concrete isn't very sustainable because of the carbon footprint of cement production. How big is that carbon footprint and how does the cement making process create greenhouse gases? Cement production accounts for about 8% of global CO2 emissions. Wow. Yeah, it's an incredibly high number when you think of it as just one industry. If you put that in terms of like countries, it would be the third highest polluting country after the U.S. and China. Where the emissions actually come from is the cement is made from limestone, which is a calcium carbonate. And when you're making cement, you mix the limestone with clays and other materials in these large kilns. And during that process, all of the carbon in the limestone ends up in the air as CO2. The emissions are actually just from the actual chemistry of the material. If we want to try and reduce those emissions, we can either reduce our use of cement or change the makeup of the material. Concrete is so important to us, right? We see it everywhere. It's not very attractive, but it has its upsides, like it's extremely durable. So why is cement plus water such a powerful combination? So that is actually exactly the question we were trying to answer with our paper, because What it comes down to in terms of the physics is that at a very small scale, at the nanoscale really, the cement and water reaction produces these particles called calcium silicate hydrate, or CSH for short. And these CSH particles are these really highly charged particles that stick together. I guess electrostatics is really what underlies the cohesion of the material. But it's not really quite so simple as that because these CSH particles are negatively charged. And if you've taken any level of physics, you know that two negative particles are supposed to repel each other. So then why do we have this phenomenon where not only do they stick together, they stick together so strongly that they can support skyscrapers. One thing that really struck me while reading this paper is that cement is so ubiquitous, but the physics of cement cohesion have been kind of a mystery until this point. Why is that? Honestly, it's because it's hard. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of things that are going on when cement reacts with water. So there are a lot of different chemical reactions that produce different hydration products. So there are a lot of different things happening and they're all changing over time. So as cement hardens, there's a lot of very quick changes because you go from something that's essentially a liquid. So it's some powder in water. And then over the course of about a day, it turns into a really strong solid. I mean, it's one of the strongest solids we have, something that can hold up a building, right? And there's a lot of things going on at really small scales that control the macroscopic material properties, which is why it's been so hard to study. So basically, it's complicated is the answer. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Now, let's dive into your research. How did you go about modeling the physics of cement? I come from a physics background, a statistical physics background. And what we were trying to do was try to understand what components were really the essential components that led to the very strong attraction that we see. And this was a process because it's definitely not true that we knew from the start where we were going to end up with this. Because at first, we thought that we could model certain things in a simpler way. One really good example of this is the role of water. So when we first started, we thought that, and this is actually kind of 
the standard approach that's been used successfully for other materials. So this is why we approach it this way. But we thought that the water wasn't going to play a very large role in this material. In similar materials where you have this situation of two like charged particles attracting, what's really the key is the ions and the counter ions in the solution. But what we ended up finding out was that the, the water actually interacts with the ions in a way that makes it behave very differently from water when it's in just like a glass on your table. So when you go down to the nanoscale and you have these particles that are confining ions in water at separations of nanometers, the water behaves very differently and actually works with the ions to form solid-like glue, I guess, that binds the CSH particles together. And what do your findings tell us about how cement works? What do we know about cement that we didn't know before? The main finding is that the confined ions in water really work together to form the solid-like glue. And the importance of this is that it's really a, a very different mechanism than the, the previous theoretical approach, where it was thought that just ion correlations alone could explain the attraction. To give you a sense of the magnitude of the difference here, the prediction of cohesion strength that we give with our new model and our new theory is 100 times stronger than what was predicted before. Wow. And that really starts to bring things in line with what we know about the material macroscopically and how much weight it can hold up. Going back to the beginning, talking about the carbon impact of cement, how does knowing the physics of cement production help us reduce its carbon footprint? There are a lot of different ways that we can reduce that carbon footprint. I guess the easiest way is just to try and make cement more efficient. So can we make a building and instead of using X amount of cement, we use 10% less cement? That would be one way to reduce the carbon footprint there, assuming we can make it stronger so that the overall building integrity is not affected. Another way is to make it more durable, which means in terms of the lifetime of the material. So if we make a building and it can stand an extra 20 years compared to the older cement, then we've really, again, reduced the need for new construction in the future. And then the third, which is, I guess, in some ways the hardest, but kind of what we're really trying to go for, is to try and develop new cement-like materials. So if we can replace the calcium in the cement, if we can maybe use something like magnesium, then we don't need limestone. And that's where a lot of the carbon emissions come from, that decarbonation of the limestone. So if we can replace it with another material that functions just as well, that would be another way to reduce emissions. Right. So by understanding how the different component parts work together, you can hypothetically replace one of them to make it more eco-friendly. Exactly. Does this have implications beyond just cement? Could these models be useful in other materials? I think so, yeah. I kind of mentioned this before, but the phenomenon of like charge attraction is not limited to cement. If we look in biology, for example, there's membranes and cells, there's DNA in cells, and those also exhibit this phenomenon where the, the packing of DNA, for example, where it's this highly charged object, but it really curls together and sticks together in a way because of presumably the like charge attraction. So there's no people have studied DNA using some of the older models that I mentioned were not really sufficient for cement. And so it would be interesting to try and maybe apply this towards that front to see if we can maybe make some prediction about DNA that would be different from what people have seen previously. Going from cement to DNA, wow. 
one of the uh, exciting things about this project was that it was a collaborative effort. So I come from a physics background, but we also worked with engineers who have a better understanding of the actual material properties. And again, my side was computational physics. There were people who worked on the analytical theory that went into all of this. And so the full impact of the project comes from having been able to combine all of those aspects. A very interdisciplinary effort there. Right. Thanks, Abay. Thank you. Abay Goyal is a postdoctoral fellow at Georgetown University. You can find a link to the Science Advances paper we discussed at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Up next, we have a custom segment sponsored by the Michelson Philanthropies, in which custom publishing director Sean Sanders chats with researcher Ansuman Supathi about the importance of supporting early career research. Hello, everyone, and a warm welcome to this sponsored interview from the Science AAA's custom publishing office and brought to you by Michelson Philanthropies. I'm Sean Sanders, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science, and today I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to talk to Dr. Ansuman Satpathi. Ansu is an Assistant Professor in the Department of Pathology at Stanford University School of Medicine. He's a member of the Stanford Cancer Institute and the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy. His research group focuses on developing and applying genome scale technologies to study fundamental properties of the immune system in health, infection, and cancer. He is also the 2018 winner of the Michelson Prize in Human Immunology and Vaccine Research. I'm going to be talking to Ansu about a number of important issues impacting science and scientists today, including the importance of diversity in STEM, the role of innovation, and why we should be supporting early career scientists. Ansu, welcome and thanks so much for being on the line. Yeah, thanks Sean for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. So Ansu, the first question I wanted to ask you is, as an early career scientist, what type of support are you looking for to advance your research? It's a good question. I think the most important thing in many ways for early career scientists is, is the scientific freedom and the time to explore the questions that interest you the most and pursue those results and ideas wherever they may take you. You know, not having a lot of extraneous responsibilities, whether administration or, or teaching or, you know, I'm a physician scientist, clinical responsibilities early on in the first two or three years of, of starting your lab is really important. The second thing is, is people. One is the community of scientists that you can collaborate with, that you can discuss your ideas in an open and free way and, and have scientific exchange. And the second part is, is recruiting people to your lab. And I think that's sometimes a uh, often overlooked area of starting a, a successful laboratory. Sure, you're at the bench a little bit, but it's really the people that you're bringing into your lab that are that are doing the work and driving the innovation that you're, you know, hopefully seeding. And then the third is resources, you know, space, funding, and hopefully that isn't the limiting factor. That you know, as you grow as a lab, those things grow with it, and you can you can depend on that. And I think that's part of providing a very supportive environment as a department or as a university for an early career scientist. In a previous interview, our editor-in-chief Holden Thorpe spoke to Dr. Gary Michelson of Michelson Philanthropies, and he pointed out research done on Nobel Prize winners in the hard sciences that showed about 80% of them had done the work for which they won the Nobel Prize before the age of 35. What is your reaction to this, particularly as it pertains to supporting early career researchers, as you just described? 
It's a great point. And I do think that there is a period of creativity, you know, right after you finish your formal training, graduate school and postdoctoral fellowship, that's really exciting. You know, it's your first time going out and pursuing your own ideas and not really having any limitations on what you can pursue. And I think that uh, leads to this sort of a high level of creativity that often exists at this time. I'd like to shift the conversation slightly to talk uh, about diversity in STEM, in, in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Broadly, how do you see the current status of diversity in STEM? Do you think we're moving in the right direction? It's a really important topic and question, and I think it's important to start with the problem, which is that what is clear is that what's critical to science and the scientific method and process is diversity of thought. And that is thinking about ideas in different ways from new perspectives, from perspectives that hadn't been thought of before. And that's what brings the innovation and the, and the new insights into scientific questions. And so bringing in people from different backgrounds, different thought processes, different experiences is just part of the scientific method, right? And it's important to say that historically, science has been unwelcoming to, to diverse communities of people, including women, including people from different racial or ethnic backgrounds. And as a result, the current representation of that diversity of thought is, is really low and unacceptable. And so I think that's the problem. So do I think it's getting better? Yes, I do. I think the progress is slow and we are still a long way from where we need to be. But I do think that as a community and as leaders in the community, many of us recognize that this is a problem and we're trying to move in the right direction. We also recognize that it has to be a community effort. It's not just something that people that are leading institutes or universities can do. It has to be systemic and acted by everybody in the community, you know, faculty, trainees, everyone. I do think it's getting better. And I think there is a, a movement to, to really focus on this. What do you see as some of the barriers to greater diversity in science? I think there are many barriers, but I think the, the first barrier is, barrier is really setting clear expectations for a culture or environment that is inclusive and diverse. That is what we're trying to achieve. And just stating that and stating all of the expectations and rules and, and procedures and policies around achieving that goal is important to say explicitly. I think the, the second thing is a flexibility in the workplace. So I think what we've learned in, in the COVID era is that science can be quite flexible, right? Some people can work from home. Some people can come in periodically. Some people can take some time off as, they're, as they have personal issues or family issues that arrive. And that's okay, and that can still be very effective. The third, I think, is around hiring and promotion. We should make sure that we are actively seeking a, a diverse workforce and representation in, in every hiring decision that we make and understand that you know some people may have intrinsic biases and, and have an open and transparent process that, that we can address those. And I think the last thing is around barriers to collaboration. You know, there have been some recent discussions at the U.S. government level around you know, what restrictions there may be to work with external collaborations, international collaborators, and addressing that and making sure that we have research security, of course, as the United States, but also lowering the barriers to engage in those meaningful collaborations is also of importance. Now, you touched on this earlier in an answer to a previous question, but perhaps you could talk a little bit more about the connection between diversity and innovation. Yeah, I think it's I think it's critical. I think diversity is the central part of the scientific process, diversity in thought, diversity in experience. And I think that's, you know, in the same way that if you were asking a scientific question, you would want to access every possible answer, every possible hypothesis and go down each road in the same way. Diversity of thought 
and experience and people feeds into that process, right? You want to have every person's input and hypothesis and how you could answer this potential question. And so I think it's critical. And I think that that is borne out in all of these studies that show that diverse teams of scientists produce better science and more impactful science. Now, Ansu, if you had unlimited resources, uh, space, money, staff, what do you think you would do? That is a dream, isn't it? So I, <laughs> I, I think that it changes the way that you frame your scientific questions. So the way that we often frame our scientific questions now is how can we achieve a short-term goal that will allow a paper to be published, the lab to get its next grant, and for us to continue going down this path. In some ways, it makes the whole process disjointed. You're trying to achieve the first result or discovery, and then you take a break, and then you get funding to do the second discovery, and then you, you, know, you go on. And so I think if you had unlimited resources or less limited resources, we can say, then that would allow you to build, you know, have asked bigger questions, ask questions that you think are not well understood, that there hasn't been a lot of progress made in that, and in some ways disregard what you think the first milestone will be in achieving that goal. And so I think it allows you to ask bigger, more high-risk questions that, you know, potentially have the ability to achieve real change, but also have a high likelihood of failing. But I think that's what that's what we need to support. So talking about funding from a broad perspective, what are your thoughts on the funding situation in science? And do you feel that it's difficult to break in for younger researchers? Well, I, I should start by saying that the U.S. is an incredible place to do science. And there are many terrific organizations, government programs, institutional programs that support young scientists. So overall, I think you know, it is a wonderful place to do science. It's not all doom and gloom in, in a way. That being said, I do think there are gaps. And I think the early career stage, meaning postdoctoral fellowship, transitioning to independent faculty and starting your own group, I think there are a number of gaps that could be improved. So I think that one gap is the early career awards for junior faculty who have just started their groups. There are a lot of private foundations that support that stage of research. So you have an idea, but not that much data to support it. On the other hand, you have a track record of having asked similar questions and having succeeded as a trainee. And that's what allowed you to get your laboratory. And now you're just asking to do that again. That space, that time, uh, there is a significant gap. There are select government programs that will fund that, such as the New Innovator Award or, or, or similar things. But I think, it, you know, from the NIH, those programs are exceptions rather than the rule. And so I think that stage of investment could be focused on more. So I think that's the first area where I would focus on improvement. Uh, the second is around supporting the postdoctoral fellowship, graduate students moving to postdoctoral fellows and then um, supporting the early postdoctoral fellows. And there are, again, programs to support that at the government level, but they often come with a lot of strings attached, right? So you have to um, do this in year one, this in year two, this in year three, and then year four, you have to be a independent investigator or you're out, right? And I think that what supports innovation is flexibility. Not every person who's, who's doing something in every field will have exactly the same progression. And I think we should uh, adapt for that. Now, bringing the, the broad down to the personal, you have won a number of prizes, and I was interested to know how you feel they've helped you as an early career scientist. Yeah, I mean, maybe there are two impacts. The major impact is that it introduces you to a community of scientists that uh, maybe would not have come across your science before. And now, 
you're in forums where you can present your science, present your ideas, and you can excite more people to work together or to just bounce ideas off of. And I think that personally for me has led to a lot of collaboration that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And oftentimes that collaboration can can be years and years and many, many papers. The second thing is around resources, around funding to pursue your most interesting, most high-risk ideas. If you only have a certain amount of resources, you can only afford to take X amount of risk, you know, knowing that a lot of things will fail and you need to have some successes to continue as a scientist in, in this ecosystem. And, it, and the more resources you have, the riskier ideas that you can pursue and the more ideas you can afford to have fail. And so I think that leads to, again, a different brand of science that's being done in the lab than if, than if we didn't have that support. Well, Ansu, uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and this has been a, a fantastic conversation. So I wanted to thank you so much for making the time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Our thanks to Michelson Philanthropies for making this conversation, as well as the new Michelson Philanthropies and Science Prize for Immunology possible. And my thanks to the Science Podcast audience for your interest and attention. Until next time. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Special thanks to intern Claire Hogan. Transcripts are by Scribby and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.